One of the devil's greatest and most ingenious strategies to cast darkness over the world is to use a church to do it. Think about that. I, I can't take credit for that idea. Actually, Deborah mentioned that on the way to church this morning as we were talking about Reformation Day. Great darkness covered Europe in the days the early days of Martin Luther and of the early uh, pre-reformers and the devil used the Roman Catholic Church to do it. This was a a day when uh, a family in France was burned alive because they taught their kids the Lord's Prayer in the common language of the people. This was a, a day when For hundreds of years, all sorts of man-made rules and regulations were added uh, to, quote-unquote, divine revelation, uh, the the canon law, the the apostolic revelation spoken through the Pope. and, And it said you had to do all these things to come to God. And that maybe if you did enough of these things, you, would, you might be okay. But you'd probably go to purgatory, which was something else that they invented. And you'd have to be purged from your sins. And if you wanted to shorten your time in purgatory, if you went and like bowed down to this holy relic, like this skull that they said was John the Baptist, or, or these nails that they said were the nails that crucified the Savior, that you could cut some time off from from purgatory, and, and even at times, if you gave a certain amount of money to the church, then they would give you an indulgence so you could get out of purgatory, or you could get your relatives out of purgatory. And all of this, this crazy stuff was added to the church, all in the name of God's word and God's law for his people. And, and the gospel was covered, completely covered over. And people like Luther thought that there was no way to have any kind of assurance or hope that they would be saved or that God would be pleased with them. The devil used a church to cover Europe in darkness. But do you know what turned everything around? It was the rediscovery of the Word of God. It was the rediscovery of the Word of God. There was a Greek scholar named Erasmus who put together the Greek New Testament from early manuscripts that were discovered. And so no longer were they reading a bad translation of the Bible that even worked in Roman Catholic theology into it. They were reading the Greek manuscripts in this collection, the Greek New Testament, and God set Europe ablaze because the word of God was discovered again. And one of the principal people that God used was a very, a very fallen person named Martin Luther, a very, a very um, messed up guy who became an Augustinian monk. And you'll learn a little bit more about his life when we watch that uh, movie later today. But the Lord used this monk who was 
in constant dread of the wrath of God, even as a monk, and was night and day afflicted by, uh, by thoughts of the torments of hell and purgatory. He would spend hours and hours each day in the confessional, so much so that the confessor complained and said, Martin, you never confess anything interesting. He just thought, maybe if I just can find all of my sins and confess enough of it, then I'll, I'll find peace and freedom with God, and he never did. So one day, uh, the, his leader sent him to study the New Testament. And so Luther got his doctorate in the New Testament, and then he began to teach. And through reading the Word of God, Luther discovered grace. In the years 1513 to 1516, Luther is trying to make peace with God, and he began lecturing on the Psalms. And he went through the Psalter, even as we still sing them today. And then he went through Romans. And one scholar says that through Luther's lectures, through the Psalms and through the book of Romans, that he had an exegetical breakthrough and an insight into the all-encompassing grace of God and the all-sufficient merit of Christ. That we are justified not by jumping through a bunch of hoops at the that the church has told us that the Pope said we needed to do. But we're justified by faith. We're justified by faith. And the Lord gave sight through the word of God to this blind monk who is groping in the darkness of a darkened Europe. And he found life in the light of Christ. And as we come to John 9, we deal with blindness and we deal with new sight. And we deal with people who can't see that then see. And we deal with people who couldn't see or who said they could see, but who actually are blind. And I want to ask one guiding question today as we study John 9. And that is, why does the light, that is, why does Jesus... Give sight to some and blind others. Why does Jesus give light to some and blind others? So that's the question that we're going to ask today. And the answer to the first part of the question, and we'll look at it in two parts, is that the gift of vision The gift of vision is a miracle of grace. The gift of vision is a miracle of grace. So we come to John 9. And Jesus is making his way through Jerusalem. And the people that should be believing him are not believing in him. And the people that shouldn't be believing in him are believing in him. And it's really ticking off the Pharisees. So much so that they want to kill him. 
And we looked last week how Jesus was in mortal combat with the darkness. And that this theme of mortal combat with darkness and Jesus being the light of the world continues into John 9 where Jesus will mention it again. But as he's passing by, it almost as John describes, it seems like a random occurrence. As he's passing by, his disciples see a blind man. And so... I don't know what the disciples were thinking, but usually when they're open their mouths, they're in for a whooping. They're, they're, they're in for a scolding. And I don't know if they're thinking they're smart or, or wise or, or like, okay, I'll sound like the Pharisees right now. And they say, hey, Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Which, of course, was the common assumption of the day. If you were blind, it's because you or your parents sinned. There's something wrong with you. That's why you're suffering. You can almost hear the Pentecostal preachers say the same thing today. You know? You don't have enough faith. That's why you're not better. This happened because of something you did. But in the, the days of the Pharisees, the assumption was if something bad's happened to you, it's because you did something to God. They might as well be the friends of Job at this point. But Jesus answered and said, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, Jesus goes on and he spits on the ground and makes mud with his saliva and then he covers the guy's eyes with it and says hey go wash in the pool of Siloam and the guy did and he came back seeing and now we find ourselves seeing the the sixth of seven signs in the book of John of miracles that Jesus did he turned water into wine He healed the official's dying child. He made the lame man walk. He fed 5,000. He walked on water, and now he gives sight to the blind. And if you're tuning in and listening to Psalm 146, as I read it, we heard a lot of these things there being fulfilled in these great signs. And so he comes back seeing the neighbors have no idea what's going on. So they, they interrogate this poor guy. Isn't that that the guy that used to sit there blind begging? Some said, yeah. Some others said, no, it's not, but it looks like him. The blind man himself says, I'm the guy. They still don't believe him. Well, how are your eyes opened? Well, Jesus, this man Jesus, made mud, put it on my eyes, told me to wash at Sloan, I did, and now I can see. So not satisfied with that, they bring him to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees ask him the same questions. John notes it's the Sabbath, which is a big deal for Pharisees because they had all sorts of extra laws about it. And they said, this man, Jesus, he's not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. The others said, well, if he's a sinner, how could he do such a sign? 
And they go on. They don't, they don't believe the blind man. So then they send for the parents. And the parents must have been cowering because they're afraid they'd get kicked out of the synagogue if they say Jesus is the Christ. So they said, yeah, this is our son. We don't know how it happened. He's old enough. Ask him. So they call him back. And the Pharisees say, give glory to God, which really means give a true account of what happened. They think this guy's lying, that he's a charlatan. We know that this man is a sinner. And it seems like the blind man, he must have been afraid, but he also seems to be perplexed and maybe having a good time. Because he says, well, hey, whether he's a sinner, I do, I do not know. Hey, that's your, your th- theology's your department. I don't know if he's a sinner, but what I do know is I was blind and now I can see. And the Pharisees are still mad. And they say, you're his disciple. We're disciples of Moses, which really just meant they're disciples of their own oral tradition. And the blind man, I love this in verse 30, says, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does as well, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened his eyes, the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What did the Pharisees say? You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. And so Jesus finds the guy. At this point, the guy just, he has vision. That's it. But Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? He find, Jesus goes again and finds him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And which, in other words, Jesus is saying, do you believe in the Messiah? And he answers, in verse 36, well, then who is he that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And the, the man says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And then Jesus makes this closing statement, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And the Pharisees heard it, some of them anyways. Are we also blind? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So what do we make of this this story? First, as I've already said, that the gift of vision, that is spiritual sight, is a miracle of grace. Why do I say it's a miracle of grace? I've entitled this sermon, "The, The Miracle of Amazing Grace. Why is the gift of vision a miracle of grace? I'm going to give you four reasons why here. First, the blind man is completely passive before Jesus turns to him. The blind man was completely passive. We don't see Jesus walking by in the blind man saying, Jesus, heal me. The blind man's just sitting there begging. And Jesus passes by, and the the Pharisees ask the or the disciples ask the question, who sinned? And Jesus stopped, and he of his own volition made mud. He didn't need to do it. 
made mud with his saliva, put it on him and told him, go wash. And he washed and he was healed. The blind man had nothing to do with causing the miracle to come about. Jesus just went to him. And as John, as I said already, as John describes it, it almost sounds random. Just as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And it really brings us back to Jesus talking about the Spirit. The Spirit blows where it wills. And in this case, it comes to this blind man. But he's completely passive in the process before Jesus turns to him. And then secondly, it was only Jesus' work that allowed the blind man to respond. The blind man did participate in this miracle, but it was only because Jesus told him to do something. It was his response to it. So Jesus told him, go wash in the pool, so then he was able to do that. He went and did that and came back seeing. And likewise, if Jesus just stopped there, this man would not have been saved. All the, all the, the blind man knew is that he was blind and now he could see. I don't know if this guy is a sinner. You know, Pharisees, that's your department. But then Jesus came back to him after he was cast out of the synagogue and said, do you believe in the Messiah? So Jesus brings the gospel to him. And who is the Messiah, the Son of Man, that I might believe in him? And the Lord says, it is me. And so he believed and worshipped him. So I've shown you two things so far of why the gift of vision is a miracle of grace, that the, the blind man was completely passive before Jesus came that it was only Jesus' work that allowed the blind man to respond and to believe. And thirdly, that Jesus shows grace to the world's outcasts. Jesus shows grace to the world's outcasts. I mean, even Jesus' own disciples didn't get this. When they saw the blind guy sitting there begging, they just said, Who sinned? They didn't say, Jesus, you should heal this guy because we've seen you do a lot of crazy stuff. You should save this guy. Who sinned? They're just into pointing fingers. How many times did Jesus come to the outcasts of society? And how many times did he tick off the Pharisees because of it? To prostitutes to drunkards, to tax collectors, to the blind and the lame, those that were seen as the lesser ones of society. And yet, these are the people that Jesus came to save and to heal. I call that amazing grace. Fourthly, one last way we see that the gift of vision is a miracle of grace. It's that afflictions overcome by the grace of God display God's glory. That this man was actually born blind so that the glory of God might be displayed in him. So that actually his affliction was a gift of grace because it was a way in which God would 
bring healing and glorify himself. That's why Jesus responds to the disciples in verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I want to just pause for a second on the theology there. It is true that every affliction that we encounter in this life and we go through is a result of sin, of the fall. So the result of the fall of Adam and Eve is all of the sin and misery that we experience in this world. But what the Pharisees did is they particularized particular miseries with attributing it to a particular sin in a person. And they went too far. That actually the afflictions that God's people go through are for the purpose of God's glory being displayed when he overtakes them. I think about John Newton who wrote the, that, the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, which I borrow from that title in my sermon title, The Miracle of Amazing Grace. John Newton was a drunkard, was a profligate, was, uh, was a slave trader. He was on a ship that sold slaves and brought them to England. He was a, a nasty dude, a really nasty dude. And I would encourage you to read his biography sometime if, uh, to learn more about him. But in God's course and God's time, he was saved by amazing grace, by the gospel. And his life just turned around entirely. And he wrote those amazing words that we love to sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. This blind man was lost, and Jesus found him. He was blind, but now he could see. And that's the same for you and me, as it was for John Newton. What is the ultimate response Jesus is looking for? It's simple faith. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. And I hope that's how each of us here responds to the giver of light as well. When he allows us to see, Lord, I believe. And if you do, that is the miracle of amazing grace taking place in your heart, in your mind. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, The God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But thanks be to God who lets light shine into darkness, who has shown in our dark hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God in Jesus. That is amazing grace. And the devil was so good at blinding. He's so good at blinding. He can even do it through churches. But Thanks be to God when he turns on the lights and he uses people like the reformers to rediscover the gospel that we are still beneficiaries of today.
as they point us to the word of God. So why does Jesus give light to some and blind others? Firstly, as I've shown you, it's, it's because God wants to display his grace through miracles of vision. But then secondly, why does he blind others? And we can see from this text that the curse of blindness, the curse of blindness is a judgment on pride. The curse of blindness is a judgment on pride. Jesus says in verse 39 after this whole episode, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Jesus, of course, is not talking about just blind, like physically blinding people, but he's talking about spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. And I'm going to argue that the reason that they become blind is because of their spiritual pride, and I want to give four more reasons to that argument why I why I would say that the curse of blindness is a judgment on pride. And number one, it's a judgment and it's pride that's the issue because we're talking about the pride in their oral law, their oral tradition, the spoken law. So not only were the Pharisees supposed to be, they're called lawyers, which, which I love. They're, they're people of the law. They were masters of the Old Testament, which was just the scripture at that time. Of course, they wouldn't say Old Testament. Um, but they're scriptures of the written word. of they were, They're lawyers of the written word of God. But what really, what really mattered was the oral law that was placed on top of the written word of God. So they had this oral tradition that helped to spell out and clarify, well, what is work on the Sabbath or what is rest on the Sabbath? And they they had all like all sorts of laws like okay, and they would debate, there'd be debates about this too, like so you have a cup of water that is pure, that's clean. And then you have a cup that's unclean. And if you take the water from the clean cup and you pour it into the unclean cup is does is the water connecting the two cups and making it all of it unclean or is it just become unclean when it touches the unclean cup so this is the kind of thing they're debating and they had this whole oral tradition and what Jesus was doing broke not the law of God but their oral law, their oral tradition, and therefore they called him a sinner. In the second century after uh, AD, uh, this all got put together, written down this oral law into something called the Talmud, T-A-L-M-U-D, if you want to read any more about it. But the Pharisees were proud of their oral tradition, and it was that by which they defined what was righteous and unrighteous. So that leads to the second um, aspect of pride by which they're judged. It was their pride in defining sin their way. They defined sin 
their way. Maybe some of us grew grew up in uh, kind of fundamentalistic circles. You know, we 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 there would be the it would become the joke: don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. You know, or dancing was forbidden, or, or all sorts of things were forbidden. And if you were a good, proper Christian, you wouldn't do X, Y, or Z. It wasn't actually explained in the Bible, but you just knew. You just, it actually came to this thing where just whatever you thought was obviously biblical. Um, and, and so things like, you shouldn't drink alcohol, that's a sin. Actually, the Bible never says that. It just says drunkenness is a sin. Right? So you have all of these man-made laws that get piled on top of the scripture that define what's sin and what's, what's okay. Right? The Pharisees loved defining sin their way. That's why they called Jesus a sinner. That's why they tell the man, you were born in utter sin. Third, they were judged for their pride because it was a boast that they see, that they know truth, that they're smart, that they know God's ways. They were boasting that they could see. Look at uh, verse 41, where Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. If you wanted to be guaranteed the pathway to heaven was clear for you, you know, become a Pharisee. That was the same thing in Luther's day. If you want to be guaranteed that you can go to heaven, become a monk. The monasteries were ladders to heaven. And all these people boasted that they see, that they knew the truth. Oh, I know the right way to live. I know who God is. I know his law. Who are you to teach me? And so God blinded them for it. You know, during the Reformation and post-Reformation years, Calvin, who had just got kicked out of Geneva, because he was too much of a reformer, was asked by the city of Geneva to defend them against the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> so Calvin gets kicked out of the, out of the church by this Genevan, the city council. They kick him out. And then the Pope comes in through a cardinal called Satellito, who is trying to convince Geneva to return to Rome. And so the Geneva City Council doesn't know what to do. Well, I think Calvin could handle this. So then they ask Calvin to write this letter. And you can find it online, the Calvin's letter to Cardinal Satellito. Very well worth your time to read to get to the heart of the Reformation. In that letter, he, he gets to the heart of the matter. What is the Reformation all about? And in the, in the process of, of, of saying what the Reformation was all about, which was namely about believing and teaching the unadulterated word of God, not the man-made tradition that was surrounding it, Calvin pointed out an error that was 
affecting two groups that seem completely different. He criticizes both the Roman Catholic Church and the Anabaptists for doing the same thing. That is basically placing man's authority over the word of God. With the Roman Catholic Church, they did it by the Pope in what was called the magisterium and canon law. So they believed that the Apostle Peter was still speaking through the mouth of the Pope's as his successor. And so anything that the Pope said then when he made an official declaration on theology or some aspect of the church of God, that was considered to be just as divinely inspired as the written word of God. And so they actually, by doing that, placed man-made tradition over the word of God. Well, Calvin saw the Anabaptists doing the same thing when they were setting the Bible aside for inner revelation. And that should probably sound pretty familiar in the spirituality of our day. Well, if you really want to hear from God, what's he telling you here? What's he saying? Listen for God within. And they were boasting an inner revelation over the word of God. Neither group was rejecting the Bible but they had placed something as superior over it. And therefore, blindness ensued. These are people that are saying, we see, we actually know better. And yet they were blind because of it. How about in the world of of politics today, when the word of God is set aside for man-made morality? saying, well, we know what's right, and we know what's wrong, we know what's good, and we know what's bad, and what's good is being called evil, and what's evil being called good. And just a a very clear case of blindness, really, in a really sad and tragic tale in in the state of Georgia and the United States, there was a school board that was pushing forward the transgender agenda, and, and they said students can go into the bathroom of their choosing. What? Oh, Virginia, thank you. Um, Virginia. Uh, anyways, that they can go in the bathroom of their choosing. And so a boy, and I mean, every rational person in the world knows that's a really stupid idea. But this boy put on a skirt or a dress or something and end up raping two girls. I heard that the school board actually covered up and arrested one of the parents who was protesting. You know, it's like insanity. These people are saying, we know what's good. We know what's good for society. We don't need God to tell us. We see completely blind. It's like the man who disregards the warning and just stares at the sun during the solar eclipse and goes blind by it, you know, just staring at the sun. I can see it. I don't need any mediation. And then all of a sudden can't see anything. He's in blinded by the light. It's the same way. These Pharisees and people today saying, I don't need to be told how to know God or I know God. I can see I'm fine. And all they are is they're blind and they can't see a dang thing. And look at these poor Pharisees. And I want to close with this. Just like 
so many in the Roman Catholic Church today and Christians, so many sadly Christians today and so sadly the Pharisees in Jesus' day could not see the gospel because their man-made traditions, spirituality had covered it up. Look at these poor Pharisees who didn't even know the, the, the own law that they, that they said that they knew so well. Look at the light of the world comes. He heals a blind man. He makes a lame man walk. He feeds 5,000. He walks on water. He does all these things. This man is standing before them who is blind and now could see. They couldn't even see the day of Messiah's coming that they of anyone should have known about. For example, it's prophesied in Isaiah. When it says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. In Isaiah 35, 4, 4 and 6, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Or Isaiah 42, I will give you as a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon from the prison of those who sit in darkness. Friends, if you want to see, look at the word of God. Behold the light of Christ and believe. But don't let man-made spirituality or man-made secularity blind you to what's staring you in the face the gospel and the grace of the light of the world who came to save you and me. So this Reformation Day, let's give thanks for the gospel that gives light to the blind and the amazing grace of God who is the one who chooses to turn the light switch on and help us to see and who shuts down the proud and the boastful. Let's pray.